0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm delighted and
1: proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's
0: practicing their speech on the telly, you never know... Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here by myself today because I have this week's interview with Cameron Bailey, the CEO of TIFF. He is the the great mastermind of the Toronto International Film Festival, which kicks off this week. Um, And when I spoke to him, I was kind of anticipating him running from place to place constantly, as I would imagine, for the head of TIFF. But as he said, there are many people who work for that organization to keep him from having to deal with little problems. So he gets to talk to me about... The big picture of this festival, which obviously is having an interesting year with the ongoing SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes. As Cameron told me, he got kind of deeply involved in labor law in a way he never expected to, you know, see who could come to the festival in what capacity. Um, But they've put together an incredible lineup as usual. Um, And he has a real passion for the international aspect of the festival, which takes up so much of it. 70% of the titles at TIFF are from outside the U.S. And there's some incredible ones on the lineup. We talk about those. We talk about how he got into working as a film programmer in the first place, which I think is completely fascinating. Um, And he made some predictions about the movies that people are going to come out of TIFF talking about, which, of course, you'll hear us talking about in our own podcast after the festival. Um, So to set up our uh, coverage of TIFF and to give you a sense of what's ahead, here is my conversation with the CEO of TIFF, Cameron Bailey. Well, I'm so happy to welcome Cameron Bailey, the CEO of TIFF, we're speaking on the Friday before TIFF begins. People will be listening to this on Tuesday. What's your life like in these days leading up to TIFF? I I kind of can't wrap my head around how busy you might be right now.
1: You know, the busiest part is actually before this. If we were busy in the few days right before the festival in this kind of way, it would probably be a bad sign. <laughs> Something's you <know>? gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say the last six months have been incredibly busy. And by that point, you hope you've locked down most of the details. You're now dealing with just last minute things.
0: Yeah. So you, are you running around? Do you just have everyone kind of coming to you saying like, wait a second, Nickelback stage doesn't have the right speakers on it. Like, <laughs> is it all just like tiny details that get to you?
1: The other good thing is that we have an incredible team. Right now, there are hundreds of people working on this festival. So ideally, you know, the, the Nickelback stage details are not coming <laughs> up to me. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I do have to get into the weeds and there a lot of it is just people based, you know, somebody who they're going to come in a day later than planned or, you know, we need them for a certain event. We need them to. To be in a certain place, that kind of stuff, just making sure that those final touches are all in place.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you're at the festival in person, for my experience in the past, it's, it's like you're teleporting, like you show up at to introduce screenings at a rate that does not seem possible for a human being. So once the festival begins, is that really what your day to day is? It's like introducing as many films as you can, making that personal connection with the filmmakers?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I'm the host, right? As the CEO, yeah. my job is really to host Everyone who's in town, to the best of my ability, we have thousands of filmmakers and uh, industry delegates and media in town, and I want to make sure that everybody feels welcome, that they have a good time. So I'm introducing screenings, I'm meeting filmmakers, I'm meeting industry delegations sometimes, or national delegations from different countries. Uh, Just trying to make sure everybody feels that they are a part of the Toronto Film Festival.
0: Yeah, I mean the role of a film festival in general is so much about relationships and your role specifically is that. And I feel like in the last decade or so that you've been in charge of things, like the relationship building has been really visible where you bring filmmakers back all the time and you kind of like welcome it as a home. Like, what is that relationship building to you? It's not just a business thing. It sounds like it's like a, um, like throwing a dinner party, I guess, like you said, like a host.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is, I think I draw Uh, My inspiration from our audience here in Toronto, and that really is the special magic of the Toronto Film Festival, the public audience that turns up every year by the tens of thousands, Um, and they're they're what bring filmmakers back as well. So my job is just to try to connect the filmmakers with the audience um, and make sure that... That's a strong relationship that people know that when they have a new film, that they're excited to bring it to Toronto because they're going to get to be in front of our audience again. And we've had that time and time again. Last year, of course, one of the most notable examples was Steven Spielberg, who hadn't been to our festival before, but he'd heard so much about our audience from his colleagues and his friends. And that was what drew him to our festival.
0: Yeah, I mean the fest, The audience is such a, um, you know, the audience award is such a big part of it. Last year, obviously, I think you, record attendance numbers last year. Is that right? Or That's like right, very yeah. close to it? Mm-hmm. And I wonder, and audiences are obviously back in a big way. Have they changed since COVID? Are they looking for different things? Are they more enthusiastic than they used to be after that pause? What was that mm. return like for you guys?
1: Well, I think it happened in stages. There were some people who were still reticent, even by uh, 2022 last year, to come to a, a room full of 1,700 people, you know, to see the yeah. premiere of The Fablemans or Glass Onion or a film that's playing in, a, in one of our big houses. Um, but I think once the festival was done and the people who were coming back into large gatherings for the first time, they just they remembered why they love it. You know, mm-hmm. that emotional connection you have with other people when you're experiencing a work of art, a piece of culture that connects you, where you feel the same thing together with lots of strangers. That's really remarkable. Um, so it took some time for people to come back. I would say our audience now is younger than it was mm. uh, pre-pandemic, and that's through a number of initiatives that we put in place over the course of the last few years. So that's not
0: an accident. That's something you guys were actively working for.
1: It's entirely intentional, and uh, you know we're excited by the young audience. It's a, it's the most diverse audience uh, that we have. It's an audience that's discovering cinema in a big way, sometimes for the first time, and we have them year round come as well. You know, young audiences are excited to see films by Robert Bresson and, and and Ozu and some of the great classical filmmakers, but but they're yeah. also excited when Harmony Korine has his new movie <laughs> yeah. in Midnight Madness at our festival. So all of those things are part of what keeps that energy live.
0: It feels like a lot of people for a while, it seemed like, you know, young people want TikTok and Instagram. They don't they're not going to care about movies. And I think, you know, Hollywood in many ways has tried to reach out to young people in you know varying levels of success. Like was was there a secret sauce for you guys in getting young people to come back and just reminding them that they can love movies?
1: I think it was just curiosity, just appealing Mm. to the curiosity of young people. I have never been one to write off entire generations. (laughs) We all were young, younger at some point. So, you know, through our year-round programs like Next Wave, where we actually connect with uh, students from high school age onward and get them interested in film and connect them with each other, other film lovers, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. Up through uh, the festival and the audience there, if people are curious to discover something new, you know, we, we all exist on a diet of commercial uh, film entertainment, which is great. We all want to see Barbie and the big blockbusters and all those movies. But sometimes you want to go to the next level, right? So if you saw, you know, a feminist blockbuster like Barbie, okay, maybe you're ready for something at another level. You want to see the new Kitty Green movie, The Royal Hotel at our festival, or you want a, a retrospective of Agnes Varda movies. You know, you want to be able to kind of pursue your curiosity as far as it'll take you. And, and I find young people are the most ready to do that. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.
0: So when the festival slate was first announced, it was, I think, a week after the SAG after strike began. There were so many questions for you about, like, how do you draw people in? And something that you were emphasizing and said you have been for a while is that I think 70 percent of the lineup is from outside the United States. Like, it is a huge international lineup. And for years, you've been trying to remind people of that. Do you feel like the message stuck maybe more this year because of the strike? Like, it's there's more attention able to spread a little bit?
1: I think it is. We already know that in opening with the new Hayao Miyazaki film, The Boy and the Heron, that we've had one of our most popular opening films ever. Mm. All screenings of the film went off sale instantly because yes. there was just so much demand for it. So we'll have rush lines and we hope everyone who wants to see it will get a chance. But um, that's great that um, a film by a Japanese master uh, animator uh, is one of the most popular films in the festival. Um, having stars come in for the three films from South Korea that are in our gala lineup. That's a big deal for us. Of course, South Korean pop culture is just on fire right now in movies and TV and music and everywhere. So we have that audience um, that's really excited for those films and and films from India and 74 different countries and, um, you know, all different styles of filmmaking as well. And I think that's also what keeps people excited if they can see something during a festival that is not the usual fare, right? We can Mm -hmm. all watch thousands of things at home, but to get out of your comfort zone and to stretch yourself a little and discover something new and discover that other people like it too, that's still amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then the sales titles also seem like a huge part of the, you know, the shift this year in the post-strike. There's a, it seems to be, I think, a bunch of big, like, gala premieres that are sales titles, which is not usually what would happen. And I think you said in another interview that, like, Hollywood wants to do business in person in this way. So what what is that kind of leg of the stool for you of having more of the sales aspect of this year's festival?
1: Well, that's a critical function for any festival, I think, is to bring the sellers and buyers of films together, both completed films, but also projects that are in the works for ideally next week, next year's festival or the one after. Yeah. Um, and what we found in uh, putting this year's lineup together is that there was a whole crop of films that I suspect were born partly out of the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, passion projects that some of the biggest stars in the world and directors in the world uh, might have had on the shelf or just in gestation for a long time. And the shutdown that happened during the pandemic allowed them to develop those projects. And now we have uh, Michael Keaton's directorial debut in *Knox Goes Away and Anna Kendrick's and... Patricia Arquettes, and we also have Vega Mortensen and Ethan Hawke returning with new films and and others as well. And to me, that's a great sign for the industry. These are all independent films, um, financed independently. They will find homes with distributors partly through festivals like ours, but they get to uh, meet their audience first and they get to meet the buyers who are here in town for the festival first as well. So we're excited by that. And I think it's it's just good for the health of the industry if there are new independent works uh, cropping up every single
0: I mean, there's been a lot of um, reporting about the complicated process of inter agreements, interim agreements with SAG for some of these projects have them, some of them don't, some of them are in the process. Do you get involved in that at all? I mean, I know you guys want the big red carpet gala premieres, but you want the films more than anything. So how much does that affect you guys in your work?
1: I have become surprisingly involved in things like <laughs> agreements. Katie, you I never gotta tell knew you, that you'd know so I much. Had <laughs> no idea, and I am not in any way a uh, a labor lawyer or a union <laughs> negotiator, or I, I, you know, this is not my expertise at all. But it was important to understand how the strike was going to affect the festival. And so I had to dig in. Uh, We've been talking to, I think we began with the sellers of the films, the major Mm -hmm. uh, agencies in Hollywood, CAA, UTA, WME, et cetera. Um, And then with also the people on the other side of the table in terms of who would buy uh, these films from distributors. And then that led us to speaking directly to SAG-AFTRA. So we've been in touch with um, a couple of people there who've been incredibly helpful, and clarifying exactly how interim agreements work, what the guidelines are. Um, They want us to, you know, have a strong, robust festival. Mm -hmm. They want Uh, SAG-AFTRA members who have independent films to be able to participate with interim agreements. But we had to really dive into the details to understand how that all worked. Been in touch with Duncan Crabtree Ireland, the the lead negotiator for SAG-AFTRA a couple of times. He's been a great guy and plans to come to our festival, which is amazing as well. Um, So that's, uh, it's been good to see, but I, I, you know, I've been wading into waters that i I just had no idea about until this year.
0: So it it seems like it's all working out at least as as best as it can in this time. You you would rather have everyone be able to be there, but, you know, because SAG-AFTRA has emphasized, like, they want people to be out there promoting their things. And I think that's something that Toronto can maybe help explain to people of why it's worth, you know, people who get these agreements to be able to get out there and speak for their films.
1: Absolutely. And then the other thing is that you know, these interim agreements are by definition interim, right? Yeah. and And when um the AMPTP companies and SaG aftra do come to an agreement, um whatever that agreement is will supersede the inter- interim agreements from my understanding. And so if there was any caution or hesitation people might have had about signing those, we don't think that's that's really called for. It's not required. Again, I don't want to wade into uh, negotiations <laughs> where I truly don't belong. but I will say <laughs> that um, that, you know, for a while, when it wasn't clear how an independent film could participate in our festival, if it had SAG-AFTRA members associated with it, it's been just really helpful to get clarity and to understand that the agreements needn't be any kind of impediment at all.
0: What was the panic level in that period where the strike first began? It felt like everyone didn't understand what was allowed. And like, you guys knew you were going to have a festival all along. But when you're having those phone calls with people, are you kind of just like walking people off ledges over and over again? Like, what? What were those weeks like?
1: I mean, there was a period of turmoil. I'm not going to lie. You know, no. where, where, as you say, we just didn't know. Or people knew different pieces of of the story and everyone had a different take on it. And it was just really important to get clear, accurate information as soon as possible, and then to just feed that out to all of our stakeholders. So as we're hearing from filmmakers and sales companies and buyers about what does this mean? Can we participate at all? Is the festival gonna happen? And reassuring people about that, that it absolutely was going to happen. We were also here in Toronto, and I think any festival would face this, Also hearing from our own partners, our supporters, who were wondering, are there going to be any red carpets or any celebrities going to be in town? You know, who's coming, who's not coming? So it was a matter of getting into the, the film by film, almost person by person detail of what was going to happen and giving as much assurance and clarity as possible. So that's really been the work of the last, I would say, month uh, leading up to the festival.
0: Did you have 2020 flashbacks to the scramble (laughs) from that time? (laughs) I did.
1: Yes. Well, I will say that uh, when the first COVID shutdowns happened in the spring of 2020, we instituted daily top of the day meetings with our core team to work out how to get the best information and share it and communicate it. And we did exactly the same thing this summer as well. Mm. So some things did <laughs> return. <laughs> Thankfully, it wasn't a global pandemic. And we have to put this all in perspective as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's very valid. Um, you were talking earlier, speaking of COVID, about, you know, some themes emerging from these filmmakers using the pandemic as a chance to pursue these projects. Are there any other themes that emerged for you in, in this slate in terms of what you think is on filmmakers' minds?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, I I compared a little bit to last year, where I think we were first beginning to see the films that were influenced in some way by the experience we all had of living through a pandemic. I last year and this year too, I'm seeing more films that feel more personal, more invested in um, just people trying to navigate a world that's changing fast that they don't understand fully, but trying to find their own place in it. And mm-hmm. that's you know it's a broad definition, but that that can be uh, expressed in a you know a serious drama, in a comedy, in a thriller, in a genre film. But that sense of we just got to find our way. We're feeling our way through this, which I I think reflects the uncertainty we all felt coming out of the pandemic and really trying to find our footing again.
0: Um, I know you're not allowed to pick favorites, nor would I ask you to, but you know what's on this slate better than anybody. What's going to surprise people? What are you like? Can't you wait to see people walking out of blown away?
1: That's always a great question. I will say I feel incredibly fortunate to have been able to go to Tokyo in the middle of this summer and to see the new uh, Miyazaki film, The Boy and the Heron. That's
0: like like getting the nuclear codes or something. Like That is (laughs) VIP-level access.
1: And, you know, it's not like you have to do that with every film, but this was a film that was made and released under very unusual conditions. There was no promotion for it. They weren't showing it to anybody. uh, And it could not be seen outside of the Studio Ghibli offices, just outside of Tokyo. So I went there. And they arranged a screening for me very generously. I saw the film. I was just staggered and just thrilled, just so excited by watching this. It just feels like you are alive in the presence of a great artist in this medium. Um, And it is... You know, it's his most, I would say, mature vision in terms of dealing with very adult themes, which we mm. saw in *Spirited Away* and some of the other films as well. But this is not a film for for little kids. It's not *Ponyo*. You know, it's a film that that tackles some of the big questions of life and loss and how we navigate the world. And I can't wait for people to see that because I think it's just going to be stunning visually. And remember, this is a handmade film, right? These are hand-drawn animated films, which is a lost art in most parts of the world. Um, But there's just a a scale to the the, the ambition of the the themes as well that I absolutely love. And there's another one that we debated about a lot, not in terms of whether we'd invite it because we instantly wanted to invite it, but just what it meant and our take on Kitty Green's new movie – The Royal Hotel, Mm -hmm. which um, stars um, uh, Julie Garner and Jessica Henwick, and it's fantastic, and it's powerful, and it has a sharp edge to it, and I think it's going to get a lot of people talking, and I can't wait to see people almost come out of that movie and argue.
0: Well, that's, gonna that's, be fun. that's the beauty of TIFF, right? Like I was looking at the yeah. Festival Street programming where you've got like all of King West blocked off and there's so much going on and you can bump into people and and argue about these things. Exactly like what you're saying. Like you guys aren't trying to be provocateurs. There's a wide range of it, but it does seem like you want to put things next to each other that will get people to kind of bounce off of each other in a way.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that that's how you know that the the art form is working right Mm. if you you, if you're not left cold by it but if you actually have a reaction whether it's a positive or negative or a reaction where you don't understand exactly that's the best thing because it actually gets you talking to other people who've shared that experience with you
0: So I did want to go back to you and your career a little bit specifically, because I think you get to a point where you're CEO of TIFF and it feels like, you know, you're like born lording over a film empire. But you started off as a film critic, um, which I think is fascinating and, and makes sense as a way for someone who loves film to get into it. What was the spark of film for you, period, and, and kind of putting you on that path?
1: You know, it started at university for me. I went to the University of Western Ontario, about two hours west of Toronto. I was the first in my family to go to university. I loved literature, so I studied English uh, language and literature there and uh, was taking all the usual courses, you know, romantic poetry and Shakespeare and all of that. And I took a film course and it was contemporary cinema. It started with Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. And went everywhere but Hollywood. So this was my very first exposure to non-Hollywood movies. So we saw European film and Japanese film and Latin American and Asian and African film. And I just realized that movies could do so much more than just entertain. And it was like, it just blew my mind, you know. So Mm. suddenly that became my medium of choice. I continued the literature, still love it. But Movies just gave me more, you know? They gave me the visual element and the the time-based quality of cinema, how cinema can manipulate time in such a strong way. And then just the ideas and the politics of movies, I got very excited by. I started writing about film, and that was actually my first exposure to the Toronto Film Festival Mm. I attended many years ago, decades ago, yeah. as a student journalist covering the, the festival and reviewing movies. And then as a, when I graduated, I continued as a critic and wrote for many years, and then became a programmer, one of the people selecting films, initially the Canadian films, and then I started something called Planet Africa, uh, films from the African continent and diaspora. And then one thing led to another, and here I am. <laughs>
0: What do you think makes someone a good film programmer, not just loving movies and not just being interested in them, but like better as a film programmer than a critic or a filmmaker? Like, what is that specific gene?
1: That is actually a longer bridge than you might imagine Mm. between being a critic and being a programmer. Uh, Both jobs require knowledge of cinema uh, and a perspective on cinema as well. You have to have uh, a viewpoint. You have to have a take Mm. on the movies you're watching. But the difference is that being a programmer really requires somebody who thinks about audiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, And often in as broad a way as possible, you have to understand not just what your own view is on a film, but how a film is going to connect with an audience. And not everyone who's a great critic can be a great programmer. It really does require a different set of skills, a, a I mean, I don't think it's necessarily about one is better than the other at all. But I think there's a certain element of being able to put yourself in the shoes of hundreds of people watching the film that you love or hate and trying to understand what their collective reaction Mm. might be to it. And. You know, I encourage our programmers in Toronto to understand our audience uh, better and better each year. Not all of them live in Toronto, not all of them are Torontonians. So there's something specific about our city where half the people in Toronto were born outside of Canada.. Huh. Right? So It's a very wow. cosmopolitan city. People plugged into all different kinds of culture from all over the world. That's important to know. But also, we're really blessed, like with the major film cities around the world. People watch a lot of movies here. There's lots of other festivals. So they've got wide-ranging tastes. It is not in any way a snobby audience, which I really appreciate, and we we encourage that. Um, but they know a lot about movies. And to program for them, you have to really understand what they how they might react to a film and try to... To, to really, at least program in that direction, not to say that you're programming just for the audience, but that if you program without thinking about the audience, you've only done half the job.
0: Do you have a favorite tiff audience memory that you felt like you guys really nailed it and and got the audience where they needed to be? Oh, so
1: many. Um you know, some of them are now kind of classic moments that people know well if they if they follow our festival the year of Slumdog Millionaire, which had been dropped by Warner Independent and yeah. was a little bit homeless and then just snapped up by, by Searchlight and coming in somewhat unheralded, right? Yeah. People might know uh, Danny Boyle, but there was there were no known stars in the film. It was set in India, uh, in large part in, in the Hindi language. And for a Toronto audience, um, especially because there is such a large South Asian population here, people got it right mm-hmm. away. Um, and everybody got the emotion and the energy of the filmmaking and that great cinematography in the streets of Mumbai, uh, and just the, the a reaction to that film when you have almost no expectations and you come out thinking I've just seen one of the best movies of the year, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's happened several times here.
0: Yeah, I always go to the premiere of Widows, um, which mm, like I just yes. the, like the ripple of audience gasp. Like I just mm-hmm. can hear it in my head. Like you just you don't yeah. get moments like that. Except for TIFF, I think. Honestly, I think an audience not knowing what they're going to get and reacting in that way is a really distinct experience at that festival.
1: And it's something so unique to festivals now, not just ours, but, you know, typically with movies that are in the commercial sphere, there's a months-long lead-up. Sometimes a year in advance, you'll see a teaser or a trailer and you get all kinds of promotion leading up to it. With a lot of festival movies, you're walking in cold, Mm -hmm. and that's such a great thing that I think deserves to be protected sometimes where you just let the movie work on you rather than the the promotion that's gotten you excited for it.
0: Yeah. Okay, last question. What do you do when Tiff is over? Do you take a vacation? Do you immediately jump into watching next year's movies? Because that's a lot of energy in a 10-day span.
1: It is. You know, perversely, one of the things I do love to do is to go to other film festivals (laughs) right after our (laughs) festivals. (laughs) There are festivals in the fall where I actually don't don't have a lot of work to do. I'm just going to see friends and colleagues. Well, that's colleagues.
0: Fun, though. Getting to see movies for fun, finally, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So that's, that's often the plan. And last year, I was able to do that. I'm just looking to see if I can do that again this year.
0: That does it for this week's podcast. We'll be back on Thursday. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com. We'll have our Film Festival Live blog going, where you can see all the latest updates from Venice Telluride and soon TIFF. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Insider. I am at Katie Rich. And our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs.
1: I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.